This is an AMI podcast. This is an AMI podcast. Are you ready? Let's go. From AMI Central. Now circling in the neutral zone. Here's the pitch on the way. 36 yards for the win. This. Here comes a big chance. The shot is. Is this the tagger? The neutral zone. This is as good as it gets. Now, here's your host, two-time Paralympian, Rock Richardson. What's going on, sports people? It's another edition of The Neutral Zone. I am indeed your host, Brock Richardson. And man, it feels like a little while since we've been on the air, because it has. Because, of course, we missed uh, last week due to the long weekend. And I was talking to our manager over here at AMI this week, and I... The first thing he said to me was, did you miss being on the show? And I said, absolutely, I did. Happy to be back. Joining me this week is Cam Jenkins. Cam, how are you? Yeah, I'm doing okay, Brock. It seems like a year since we've uh, talked uh, since last. And like you said, it's because of uh, Easter weekend. Yes. Did you have a good long weekend? Yeah, I had a great long weekend. Uh, it was good. Um uh, yeah, I was very lucky to be able to have a little uh, bit of cake. I did a uh, curbside pickup for that, so I had a fantastic meal. Uh, absolutely loved my prime rib, favorite meal of all time. Oh, yes, I'm right there with you on the prime rib from the keg, along with a good uh, medium steak. That always goes well. And joining us is Josh Watson. Josh, how are you? I'm doing well, Brock. That it's, is good. Uh, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's a beautiful day, and we get to do the show. Um, had a great long weekend. Not uh, quite as fancy a meal as uh, Mr. Jenkins over there, but you know what? If it's your favorite meal, I say go for it. So, absolutely. Looking forward to a good show. <laughs> yes, it will be a great show. Got lots coming up for you in the next uh, hour or so. Let's start with where we always start, and that's our Twitter polls. Last time we joined you, our Twitter poll said, how do you think the Toronto Blue Jays will do this year? The response goes as follows. 13% of you said non-playoff team. 26% of you said playoff team. 20% of you said losing record. And 40% of you said a winning record. This week's Twitter poll asks you, did you watch March Madness? Your choices are yes, no, and only the final. Um, just taking quick poll, what would you guys say on this week's Twitter poll? Josh, start with you. Well, as you already know from our chats offline, I absolutely watch March Madness every year. And I certainly did watch as many games as I possibly could while I was working. I uh, loved, loved, loved that semifinal game between Gonzaga and UCLA, but we're going to talk about that later in the show, so I will keep everybody in suspense until then. Cameron, did you catch a little? Oh, sorry. (laughs) Yeah, I was just so excited to get into it. Yeah, March Madness, Mm -hmm. it was fantastic. It always is. Um, You got to love it. It's like the only tournament that I know of that where you're always rooting for the underdogs and a lot of them seem to win. So it's just so exciting with the buzzer beaters. Loved it. And on that note, let's get into this week's headlines. March Madness has concluded for another year. Congratulations goes to the Baylor Bears for winning the men's national championship. And on the women's side, we congratulate the Stanford Cardinals on their championship. 
I, as I said, loved this tournament. I watch the men's tournament every year, and I think Baylor had an awesome season and was quite surprised by how easily they handled Gonzaga, but it was a great game. So enjoy, and let's get ready for next year. After the MLB made the announcement that it would remove the All-Star game and draft from Atlanta, Coors Field in Colorado will be the new location for the All-Star festivities. Let's hear more from the mayor of Denver on what this means for the city. It's been a long year, and I can think of nothing more energizing to help advance our recovery and to boost our economy than by bringing the 2021 Midsummer Classic back to the Mile High City. I certainly think uh, this is a good decision on the MLB's part in moving the All-Star festivities, and I hope that everything goes well in the Midsummer Classic down the way in the summer. Montreal Canadiens forward Brendan Gallagher is expected to miss significant time as he is sidelined due to a broken right thumb. Now with this happening, I see a lot of Habs social media and they're complaining about uh, Price not being in, Gallagher not being in. Come on Habs fans, you've got to make sure that it's the next person up because you have a backup goalie that is making $4.5 million that's technically a starter on a lot of other teams. So I just don't want to see it on social media. Next man up, let's go. And those are your headlines for this week. Always love those uh, hot takes that we sometimes get. And Cameron, I completely agree with you. Jake Allen is a starting goaltender and needs to be one while price is out. And on that note, we're going to take a break. Coming up next, we're going to be joined by Eric Robesniks, and he's going to tell us about his involvement with the Michigan wheelchair basketball program right after the break here on the Neutral Zone. Stay with us. We'll be right back. six ways to get in touch with the neutral zone on twitter number one at ami audio number two at neutral zone br number three at neutral zone brett number four at neutral zone cam j number five at cp buchanan 13 and number six at j watson 200 now get out there and tweet one for the gipper Welcome back to the Neutral Zone right here on AMI-audio. I'm your host, Brock Richardson, joined by Josh Watson and Cam Jenkins. Coming up a little bit later on in the show, we're going to be joined by Kelly and Company host, Kelly McDonald, who's going to chat a little bit of mainstream sports with us. Uh, But right now, we're going to welcome in our first guest for the show, and that is Eric Robesnik. He has always had a passion for various sports and was introduced to the to wheelchair basketball through an elective course in the University of Toronto, which was business and sports. From that, he had 
he was hooked and got involved with uh, Canada's um, uh, wheelchair, wheelchair Basketball Canada and stuck with them for a long, long time. He's currently employed by the University of Michigan, and he joins us right now to talk all about that. Eric, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me today. You were introduced to wheelchair basketball through a guest speaker. Was there something specific that you can pinpoint that got you hooked on the sport? Yeah, I think the first turning point for me for really getting me introduced to adaptive sport in the world of parasport was actually just, you know, the the general awareness piece that that guest speaker, uh, you know, introduced in that classroom was, you know, I, I grew up being a, you know, high-level hockey player and, 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 you know, being involved in all sorts of sports and, you know, being involved in extracurriculars and watching sports, but, you know, never really kind of had the awareness about the para-sport world or, or, or the world of adaptive sports. And, you know, I don't think it came from a place of not thinking that people with disabilities could play sports. I think it was more so just the fact that, you know, I didn't even really know much about it, what was going on, what was out there, and, and definitely didn't know how well-established things were uh, when it came to the actual, you know, competition that happened domestically overseas and, uh, and even all the way up to the Paralympics. So just the general awareness piece, you know, intri- intrigued me as someone that's just a big fan of sports overall. You know, from that point, they invited me out to see, uh, to see wheelchair basketball in action and then that was really kind of hook, line, and sinker for me, you know, seeing the sport in action. Uh, they invited me to watch the 2015 uh, CWBL competition at the Toronto Pan Am Sports Centre. And right when I walked into the gym, you know, being a fan of hockey, the speed of the game blew me away right away. Um, you know, seeing the players fly around on the court, and, but also the strategy and the, you know, the tactical component of the game, uh, you know, I quickly grew uh, an appreciation for what they were doing out there. And I wanted to be involved in some way for sure. Um, just because it, it, it looked like a high flying sport. It was a great atmosphere. Uh, and that's what really sold me was watching my first game uh, that day at the CWBL competition. So later on, you were involved with Wheelchair Basketball Canada, and it was originally as an intern, and then later it developed into a full-time position. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that experience? Yeah, and I really have to give credit to all the people that made that journey possible. Uh, I, I think about uh, you know people like Wendy Gittens, Marie McCullough, Dylan Carter, Daryl Nordell, uh, but particularly really have to give credit to Michael Frogley, uh, or as, you know, some know him in the sport and, you know, in the adaptive sports space, Frog. Um, you know, I think what really made that experience unique uh, and so enriching, uh, but also really kind of kept me involved in the sport and, and grow in the ways in which I was involved was being put in the diversity of positions right away uh, that really forced me to uh, be a problem solver, be creative, and, and really get hands-on with the sport right off the bat. You know, the, the first two major projects that I recall working on that summer in 2015 uh, was working on you know, uh, performance analytics, and one side of it was working with you know, kind of the operations or, or management of the program. And, and uh, you know, Frog gave me a task to work on 
you know, tactical analysis of our national program, you know, to understand you know, what we were doing from an offensive perspective uh, in terms of the, the, the duration of the shot clock that we were using. And, and just kind of very simple. But he encouraged me to find a way that we could more broadly apply this data um, and use it for, for national teams to not just understand, uh, you know, the duration of what what we're doing on offense and how we're using the shot clock, but generally a, a tactical analysis of the strategy that we're using on offense and the effectiveness of that. Uh, so that first project really immersed me into the technical and, and tactical side of the sport, understanding the strategy, understanding, you know, what made a good team or what offensively uh, made up a, a good team. And you know, that project really culminated in me then uh, serving on the performance analytics team for the national uh, senior and junior national programs, along with Dylan Carter and Steve Sampson, uh, to do analysis of gameplay uh, for the 2015 Para Pan Am Games, uh, which right off the bat was just a thrill to be involved in uh, and from there, that continued to escalate. The second project uh, that I was involved in right off the bat was working with Mike Frogley and Murray McCullough on the talent identification camp that Wheelchair Basketball Canada ran. And, and being on the organizational side of, of planning those and delivering those from start to finish, uh, you know, we did those for our, our junior athletes, you know, those that are just being identified by the national program. You know, all the way up to more of our late entry athletes, as we called them, who were, you know, kind of late, uh, you know, adults or or kind of past their teen years, getting involved in the sport. And I think having those two experiences early on uh, proved to build a great foundation for my knowledge of wheelchair basketball, my knowledge of adaptive sport, because it got me really involved, you know, in the nuts and bolts of the game and how it worked from a strategic and performance analytics standpoint, but it also got me involved from a management and operations standpoint and getting in contact with a lot of the people that were involved in the sport, you know, that were driving the domestic growth of the game. Uh, so from there, you know, I, I, as I progressed in my role, Frog increasingly gave me you know, increased responsibilities and also opportunities uh, and, and honestly, just a great mentorship opportunity uh, because he always challenged me to be creative, be a problem solver, and, and most importantly, I think the tool and, and you know taught me the skill to reflect. Uh, so after that first summer, you know, started working more and more on the operations side and management side of the program, you know, and ended up having a phenomenal experience there, you know, doing management and operations for the senior and junior men's national programs. You know, managing the Black and Red Aces program at Wheelchair Basketball Canada, you know, which is a team for able-bodied athletes. Uh, managing our U23 men's national junior team at the 2017 World Juniors in Toronto. And you know, definitely by far the best highlight being at the Rio 2016 Paralympics with the national team. Uh, so all around, it, it was a tremendous experience and, and really have to give credit to uh, you know, Mike Frogley and the others who made that experience. Uh, so great, but also just generally the wheelchair basketball community. Uh, it's a great community to be involved in, and uh, I think that's definitely one of the key motivating factors that, that kept me coming back and keeps me involved in adaptive sports. 
Now, your focus has been surrounding inclusivity and the idea that everyone who wants a experience of sport should have it regardless of their situation. I'm curious, why did that become so important for you? Yeah, and I think that's a good question because I, and, you know, I talked a bit about reflection uh, and, and that being a skill that I picked up from Frog, but um, you know, I think everybody that's listening in can think about a time where they were excluded, where they did not, you know, where they were excluded from something. I don't care whether that's, you know, arts, whether that's sports, whether that's, you know, family, friends, what have you. I think everybody can relate to a time where they were excluded from something. You know, and, and let's be honest, that sucks. You know, it's a terrible feeling. Um, and it's, there's no place for it. But, you know, at the same time, think about a time where you were included. Right? And think about what that did for you in terms of, uh, you know, the social relationships that you may have generated or, you know, the opportunity to grow as an individual and, and just uh, the sense of uh, the sense of happiness that you enjoy from being actually included in something. I, I think that's a really powerful motivating factor for anybody. You know, particularly in sport, because we know sport has so many great opportunities for you know, individual development, for opportunities you know, to build meaningful relationships and to grow as an individual, uh, whether it's you know, physically, socially, the transferable skills that you get from participating in sport. You know, there's so much that, can be, uh, that you can gain from your experience, from being able to participate, from being able to access sport. And I definitely noticed that, you know, being a hockey player growing up and enduring an injury, sport was taken away from me, and I knew what it was like to not have that opportunity. And at the same time, you know, later on, I was then able to, you know, fortunately uh, compete with Team Ontario in the Canada Games in wheelchair basketball. And rolling out onto the court with my wheelchair basketball team, you know, that, that's, that's when it really struck me was that I was so blessed to have that experience to experience the highs, experience the lows of sport and everything that it had to teach me in, in terms of life lessons. But I realized that, that sport is not always equitable. Not everybody has that opportunity to be included. Not everybody has that opportunity to win. Not everybody has that opportunity to lose, which is also just as important because of the lessons that it teaches you. So it We're really joined. got me thinking about, you know, what what can we all do in our daily lives, whether it's our work, whether it's, you know, our personal experiences or relationships, to make sure that everybody has that opportunity to be included and to be involved. We're joined by Eric Robesnicks, who's employed by the University of Michigan as the assistant project manager of their adaptive sports. You're listening to The Neutral Zone. I am your host, Brock Richardson, joined by Josh Watson and Cam Jenkins. So as part of your MBA requirements with Ryerson University, you undertook a major research project that got quite a bit of attention. Can you maybe uh, tell our audience a little bit about that? Yeah, during my time at Wheelchair Basketball Canada, I noticed that a lot of our athletes, you know, uh, on the younger side would go to 
uh, would go to the States for college to play wheelchair basketball, uh, which is a great, great opportunity. Sport is a great vehicle uh, to get higher level education, uh, but to also then continue your athletic pursuits as well. But, you know, what struck me as interesting was that, you know, while there were collegiate programs in the state and people were going down to compete you know, in wheelchair basketball in the states for collegiate programs, you know, these programs were not really officially uh, housed or, or kind of really kind of institutionalized or supported by any kind of governing structure or, or the universities themselves. They, they almost ex- existed in kind of periphery to the university uh, in, in a kind of broad generalization. Um, and that, that just intrigued me to understand, you know, why that was and what is the potential for adaptive sport in the future, uh, you know, at the intercollegiate level? Is there a way to integrate adaptive sport as part of the NCAA? You know, and you can look at that from an equity perspective in the fact that, you know, why shouldn't adaptive athletes be supported you know, in that equitable way, especially by an organization like the NCAA, uh, but also looked at it from a perspective of, of growing adaptive sport and what that would mean for the growth of the game uh, domestically you know, at the grassroots level if there was now a stronger pipeline for those youth athletes to then go and play at the collegiate level. So that's really what I looked into was, was the topic around adaptive sport inclusion and integration with the NCAA and intercollegiate athletics. Uh, and that ultimately proved to be you know, a great topic to dive into because it introduced me to you know, a whole variety of stakeholders involved in adaptive sports in the United States, uh, ultimately landing me in, at the University of Michigan as the uh, current assistant director of their adaptive sports program. So Canada, it's certainly not as far as long as I'd like it to be, and I'm sure other people would like it to be, as far as combining their school programs with the pair of sports. So why do you think that is, and what needs to take place to change it moving forward? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and you know, while the states does have collegiate programming in, in certain pockets of you know, high school integration as well, um, you know, by, by no means is the U.S. the perfect system, but I think it starts giving examples as to what uh, Canada can do as well. And uh, I think the biggest gap right now as to you know, where we see the lack of development is inclusion at the K-12 level. So you look at the physical education curriculum you know, across the board in our Canadian schools, and, you know, Physical education at the K-12 level is about developing physical literacy skills, being able to throw a ball, being able to get from point A to point B, being able to work on a, work as a team to achieve a goal. Now, all these different skills uh, can be achieved and can be addressed uh, in an accessible and in an inclusive way. Now, to be able to throw a ball, I don't have to be, you know, standing up. And it doesn't, you know, just because somebody's sitting in a chair or whatever other disability shouldn't exclude them from the fact that they can participate if the system is set up to be more accessible. So I think really the starting point is then, you know, talking about and, you know, leaning on the adaptive sport organizations that exist, you know, 
you know, between cruisers, between Wheelchair Basketball Canada, between, you know, the different organizations that exist out there to now introduce adaptive sport as part of the PE curriculum in public schools. You know, whether that's, you know, things like uh, sitting volleyball or wheelchair tennis or wheelchair basketball or goalball, you know, there's a lot of, you know, kind of low-cost sports and, and great sports that you can implement at the K-12 to level to get kids involved right off the bat and make that a normal part of somebody's kind of growing up in the educational system is that more people are aware about adaptive sports, that they exist, that that's an opportunity for them, whether they have a disability or not. And I think that's the best starting point to really take the, the growth of and participation in adaptive sports to the next level in Canada uh, and have a trickle-up effect from there. You know, ultimately in the states, uh, you know, some of the states that uh, some of the states within the U.S. that have the best advanced adaptive sport programs, you know, have high school level competition in adaptive sports, and you don't see that in Canada right now. So it's got to start with. It's really got to start with gym class at the K to 12 level. Uh, then progress to, you know, inter-school competition. And eventually, I think your colleges will be able to start to follow. Eric, the uh, information and the feedback you've given us and what you're doing over there in Michigan, and it it really does seem so simple to get those, you know, those schools, K-12, to integrate some of the less expensive sports and move from there. And we really appreciate you taking the time today to fill us in on that information and congratulations on your role with uh, the university of Michigan. And we wish you all the best and we hope to have you on again down the line. Yeah. Thank you very much for having me. Have a great day. You too. That was Eric Robesnik's the university of Michigan as the assistant project manager for their adaptive sports. That's where he is currently coming up after the break we're going to bring on kelly mcdonald from kelly and company we're going to switch gears to the mainstream sports world and he'll join us to do that stay with us we'll be right back For the neutral zone, call now 1 866 509 4545. And don't forget to give us permission to use your message on the air. Let's get ready to leave a voicemail. Welcome back to the Neutral Zone right here on AMI-audio. I'm your host, Brock Richardson, joined by Cam Jenkins and Josh Watson. Well, we uh, had a really busy show prior to the Easter long weekend, so we never really got a chance to uh, talk a lot about the Blue Jays and the beginning of their season, and they're uh, a few games in now. And one of the biggest 
baseball fans on the network. And I say one of because I can think of another one that would go, hey, I'm, hey, I should be on the top of that list. But that is Kelly McDonald, and he joins us now. You can, of course, hear Kelly McDonald Monday through Friday from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern on aptly named show called Kelly and Company. Kelly, welcome back to the program. It's been a while. Thank you, and appreciate you guys and the offer. And definitely, I spend lots of time texting Andy Frank. Uh, well, I very seldom watch games live, so it's usually after or before saying I'm looking forward to or, oh, that sucked. <laughs> yeah, I have to. I, I have to temper my my excitement with with kelly as well because it's like he he may not have watched this so i i need to make sure the nba championship for the raptors was the hardest one for me because i wanted to like scream and yell with kelly but i had to wait like an extra half an hour so i can't uh, stand commercials (laughs) i just can't stand them so i prefer to skip yeah uh let's start with uh March Madness. Uh, I want to go back to the final four round first. What did you guys make of the buzzer beater shot uh that Gonzaga had? Cameron, start with you. Well, like I mentioned in the opening, there's nothing like uh the March Madness tournament because uh it's one of the very few tournaments where um, a team can be like one of the worst teams and they can knock off uh, the top team. And it kind of had that feel again with the two buzzer beaters. Uh, Gonzaga, they kind of slipped through there and good for them that they did because they had a phenomenal season. But yeah, like I said, going off the top of what I said, it's just amazing how uh, the tournament works and how um, the feeling is just undeniable. Josh? Yeah, absolutely. I watch the tournament every year. It started when I was younger and my dad would sit and watch it. Uh, it was one of the few college sports we actually followed. And watching that final four, the, the Baylor game was a bit of a dud. Houston didn't a really bit? match up very well. <laughs> yeah, 20 points is maybe a bit of a dud. But uh, that that Gonzaga game had me on the edge of my chair. It was just incredible. And that shot by Suggs at the end was just, that that was magic. That was absolutely magic. That is why I watched the tournament. So a bunch of people I had heard say the tournament wasn't going to be that great before it started. They were sad about teams uh, such as Duke having to be out of it due to COVID and different things like that. They didn't expect it. Well, I mean, the tournament doesn't have a lot of defense. It's it's a ton of offense. So the buzzer beater is an amazing thing for entertainment and, and fun watching it. So really thought, nice, cool, really surprised how much Gonzaga had to work in that game. And I didn't watch them all season, so I have no idea how many other games amongst that pile they've won they had to work or were even remotely close. But near the end, they were coasting a lot to to what they were doing because they were their movement of the ball was so well like a, like an NBA team already. And, and that was really the thing to see. So I had to wonder, come the game with Baylor, what had happened on that Saturday night that changed things that almost like Superman and Kryptonite or like someone came over and, and washed off all the Knight Rider car and you know, impervable shield. It was interesting. Something changed in that game that carried over. Yeah. I, one of the things that I really thought um, watching that game and it's because of 
something you said to me, Josh, and I'm not sure if we talked about it over the air or not, but you said, I, I'm just not sure uh, Gonzaga is getting enough of a push. I'm not sure they're getting enough of a push, and, and, I, and I don't know what we're going to see from them. I thought they got that in the final four game, but I think they had to work too hard to get over the hump of the final four game, that that was almost their championship. And as Kelly just alluded to it, it just kind of, they just kind of ran out of gas. Yeah, I, I do remember that conversation and that's exactly it. I remember seeing a stat that they had won most of their games by 10 points or more this season. Yeah. And so you, you have to ask yourself when a team is winning by double digits every night, I mean, these are still kids. So you start to think that's normal. And so when they got up against a defensive team like UCLA and you had it go right down to the last shot, you had to kind of wonder, okay, how are they going to bounce back? Are they going to use up all of that magic in that semifinal and come out flat, which I think is what happened. I think there was such an emotional release after that semifinal game that it was just kind of like, oh, yeah, we've got another game. And by the time they realized it, they were out of it. Cameron, can you make the argument, though, that Baylor just wanted it more? Or was it in your mind, no, I think Gonzaga just came out flat? No, I don't think uh, Gonzaga came out flat. I think you've got to take a look at that. Baylor is really good. Um, you know, like they were 17-0 at one point in time during the season. And then the Baylor team, they had to shut it down for three weeks uh, due to uh, COVID precautions. Uh, then they came back. They barely won the first game back, and then they lost the second game back. Um, but if you look at, you know, quite a few of their statistics that they had, um, whether it be last year or this year, um, you know, their threes uh, this year was at 41.3%. And the Baylor takeaways, um, they were ranked fourth. So I think that, yes, Gonzaga certainly needs to be able to um, be taken a look at because they did have a perfect season. Um, but I think that really took Gonzaga off guard, thinking that they were the best, when in actuality, I really think Baylor, had they been able to uh, do their season without any um, pauses of that three weeks, I think they would have been uh, right there with Gonzaga as far as maybe even no losses at all. Kelly, in most situations when you have a, a season where you've gone mainly undefeated except for one game, and in this case it was the championship game you can argue well it was a successful season but with March Madness and Gonzaga can you view it as a successful season when the end goal was March Madness and it just didn't get there for them I think you have to still because what pieces they have were tremendous what these guys accomplished in the way of ball movement and the way this team looked Tremendous. Obviously, them themselves would say, we fell short, we failed. And wherever they themselves know where they might have come short, um, and giving credit to Baylor, as, as, as they do have to have, as Cam says, this is a good-looking team. They're not just suddenly there and, oh, it's an upset. Yeah, okay, but that, the only reason it's an upset is because of the record, not because of Baylor's been there last year. Dear, but The team has looked pretty darn good. They've got a great system at Baylor and always really have. So one could argue 
we saw something on Saturday's game. We took it to them on the Monday. And you know when you can play loose. <laughs> this is the big guns team. We're just going to go out there and do the best we can because we're feeling it. And I think for Baylor, again, it comes into now we've gone through the COVID pro, you know, protocol, everything like that. We're here now, and we're peaking now. And was there more pressure than on Gonzaga just simply For sure. based on the record? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's that's where I kind of look at it as well. And, I mean, mm-hmm. if, if, if you could honestly tell me that the, the Toronto Maple Leafs had – you know, uh, um, 80 and 81 and one record, I'd look at it and I'd go, yeah, that's a pretty good season. But I think the end goal is that you want to raise that, that trophy. And I'd still think Baylor was the only team that was really going to give them the push. And they ended up, you know, getting it done and winning the championship. Our very own Brett Wills sent out a tweet this week and said, that he had chosen uh, Baylor to win. And I, I can't argue with him. Baylor mm-hmm. was the one team that that could have done it and did do it and looked good doing it. You, you, you can't sit there and say, well, I think Gonzaga, you know, did this and this wrong. No, I think it's more about Baylor played a better game overall in that and one that's semifinal. Stand. You can't take away from that game either. You know, the work that was no. done, the tape that was watched, and what they took to them. And at the end of the day, if you're going to win the championship game, uh, 14 turnovers, which Gonzaga had, that's mm-hmm. not going to do it. That's nope. not a championship team at the end of the day. And uncharacteristic for them. Yeah, absolutely. And on that note, we're going to take a break, but Kelly McDonald's going to stick around and we're going to chat a little bit about the three and four Toronto Blue Jays to start the season. Hang around and we'll be right back. You're listening to The Neutral Zone right here on AMI-audio. Welcome back to the Neutral Zone right here on AMI-audio. I'm your host, Brock Richardson, joined by Josh Watson, Cam Jenkins, and Kelly and Company, who, of course, is the host of Kelly and Company weekdays at 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern. We appreciate him hanging around with us for the second half of our program. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, Over the first uh, seven games, they are three wins and four losses. But... Let's put the record aside for just a couple of moments. What are some of the positives and negatives that you see on this team? We'll start with Cameron, go to Josh, and then Kelly. Well, I think uh, for myself, you got to go back to my old buddy uh, Montoyo and how he's managing the bullpen. Oh, here we go. Here we I go. I think that's the negative Already? part at the end of the day, man. <laughs> like, that, Didn't you, know you like what? seeing like, Morano last night when you saw him? Oh, man. <laughs> Morano, he's uh, got to get out of here. I don't like Morano. Um, I am happy with Mayweather. Let's go with the positive. I am happy with Mayweather, and he was picked up in the Donaldson trade. But, uh, you know, as Kenny, or as uh, Kelly McDonald would say about a lot of the other players or pitchers, get out of here. So, you know, I'm just not uh, down with Montoyo and how he's managing the pitchers at the end of the day. He has to have pitchers to manage. Uh, that's that's my first thought. Um, 
you know what? I think you're doing the best with what you've got right now. We didn't anticipate starting the year without George Springer, so that is definitely going to hurt us. But, yeah, but that has nothing I, to do with the pitching, though, with Springer being out. Well, that's true. But if he's in the lineup, maybe you get some more run support. But, uh, yeah. Def- yeah, definitely, I think it would be nice to see the pitching come around. But on a positive note, you've got Vladdy looking at least competent at first base, where he was not last year. And you've got... Kevin Biggio adjusting to third base quite well. You've got a great double play tandem in Bichette and Semyon up the middle. So your infield defense seems to be doing really well, in my opinion. Mm. So I feel that's a weakness, the the defense in general. I don't think we're going to – it's going to take a long time for these all of them to – to get better. The fact that we're not taking enough walks is absolutely discouraging. Um, Vladdy is, is really under a bunch of pressure to be someone. He has come along. He's done all right. And I just hope Kirk doesn't get the same pressure because, I mean, he, we want him to do so well. We want him to do so much. I think what we're seeing for those guys, I hope, isn't Rowdy Tellez. Rowdy Tellez was doing amazing. Um, the overall, guys don't get enough hits. In spring training, the pitchers start out uh, way ahead of them. April's always a lousy hit month for the Blue Jays, and that I'll I'll give on to the manager. I want to see more of that work being done, even though I'm not there before the games or in spring training to see how much they're batting off the, the batter's eye. It just, to me, guys, come on. The pitchers for these other teams, some of them are good. Some of them aren't so good, and you should be able to get to them. Okay, I have to give one Kelly McDonald a little bit of kudos because I I wanted to give this person more credit uh, because we saw him pitch horribly. I mean horribly last year, and I'm referring to Tanner (laughs) Roark. And I said to Kelly, you wait, he's going to pitch his first game like seven shutout innings. Yeah, no, that didn't happen. No, no. I'm I'm done with Tanner Roark. Like yeah. I, if if he gets another start, I will be really really annoyed with with Charlie Montoyo. Not he never should have been of, there in the first place because of what happened last year. He shouldn't have been rehired. Surely they should have been able to get some other uh, pitcher from the scrap heap to pitch better than Roark. Taiwan like, Walker. On. That there guy wanted to be on the darn team, and all Tanner Roark can say is, hey, man, I'm pitching out of the stretch because I got a big butt. I might as well use it. That's what the guy <laughs> said. They were talking about that earlier in the week. That's his 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 comment, and okay, and I'm glad he's, he's a, he can say, oh, I pitched terrible. Yeah, but we lost a game, and I will say, you know, when, when uh, Gladdy earlier in the week, Gladdy earlier in the week uh, stretched and didn't stretch enough, and missed a ball that could have got him out of an inning, you're going to get those from the defensive stuff. But these guys, these pitchers, have been hearing what we've been saying for weeks. Come on. And some of them, Mats, have risen to the occasion. Oh, really, Toronto people? I'll show you. Yeah, and I think the thing that kind of gets me a little bit about about Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is the plays that he he should make, he's not making. The infield hasn't helped him. No, been a no. Co- there's been a couple of plays where I'm just like, you, you got to dig that one out. Like, I understand you can't stretch so far. And I think the defense needs to be the thing that helps him. But he needs to learn a little bit more on how to manage first base before uh, I'm sold on it. And, and he's got to do things with the bat because that's what we're paying this guy for. Oh, he's getting What's a lot the- of bad throws, though. 
Yeah, he is. He is. Um, but there have been a couple that he should have picked and didn't, yep. which cost them. There was one game that I believe they should have won and yeah, could one have of the Texas he, games. Yeah, yeah. If he yeah. if he picked it, and I mean, I'm not sitting here, you know, picking on on Vladimir Guerrero, but those are the things. If you're not going to make it certainly the sounds simple, like you're picking on him. Yeah, <laughs> the simple plays are going to cost you victories and. So far, I've seen well, one, maybe two games that that's been the case. Kelly, we're hoping the bats will come awake. So the defense, as as weak as it is, it's a below average defense at the moment. And 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 I mean, outfield okay, but if our bats came came awake, it's just the problem is if you're not taking walks, if you're not being aggressive enough on the bases, uh, you, you you're, and you're giving away runs because of the weak defense. What do you got? Yeah, and I think yeah. at the end of the day, Vladdy. He's played first base long enough that you should see uh, him being a little bit better than he currently is as well. Yeah, I I think he's coming. I think that we as fans too do have to realize how hard this stuff is. And, you know, I kick myself all the time because I'm very, come on, Bushette, do a better throw. You know, and what are you doing? But uh, I know when we look at someone like Bushette, the guy's played in 81 games, uh, 83, sorry. Yeah, Yeah, the the other person that's, somewhat concerning at the moment is Teoscar Hernandez because we're still seeing that, oh, I'm going to swing at a pitch that I really have no business swinging <laughs> at. And you end up, you yeah. end up shaking your head and going, why did we swing at that? Like what, what, what's going on here? So it's the discipline at the there's, plate that, that I need to see a little bit better. Josh, go ahead. Yeah. There's, there's only one, player that I can think of in my lifetime who could swing at anything from his shoe tops up to his eyeballs. And that was Vladdy senior. You bet. Everybody else you've got to have plate discipline. I totally agree on that. Yeah. And, and that's we're just we're not, not seeing, seeing, those seeing walks, it. Josh, that's what's, what's killing. Exactly. Us. Yeah. We're not seeing that. And that's part of being young. Like I think I heard last night that we're the youngest uh, lineup in the major leagues. So that's, that that's an excuse, but it's also something to bear in mind too. We're we're going to learn these things. It's just it's not going to happen fast enough for the liking of anybody on this panel. All right. So uh, going around the table, we'll start with Cameron, Josh, and then Kelly. Where does mm-hmm. this team ultimately finish in the American League East, and are they a playoff team? I think they're going to have that just over a five hundred record, and I think they're going to miss the playoffs. Yeah, I'm I'm a little more optimistic than 500. I think they're going to do better than that, but I think they're going to tease us and just miss the playoffs. Yeah, I'm in there too. I th- I think we're going to get close at between 85 and 88 wins, but I don't think it's going to be enough. I hope I hope we're wrong. Um, and I'm going to tell you, I think we'll have an idea if we're right or wrong by the middle of May. Because if they do what I feel I want to see them do and explode in in the next two weeks then that's going to be the total opinion changer. And the the issue is we're missing George Springer for even longer than what we anticipated him to be gone. He's not yeah. going to be involved in it all in this homestand. I think this team is going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 90, maybe 92 wins, which might get them into the second wild card. And then who knows what can happen. But I think it's going to be a struggle all year and we're going to be having conversations of why are we seeing this and that uh, continue 
over and I think over Cameron's again. gonna have plenty of opportunities to rail against Charlie Montoyo for He's the rest gonna of the season. Roast so. that oh, guy. <laughs> Let me tell you this about that. You know, like I got so many gray hairs talking about Montoyo and watching blue games last year. The only thing I don't I think all I have is gray hair, so the only thing that's gonna happen this year is all my hair is gonna fall out because of Montoyo. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you are gonna continue to get uh, dry modes, whether and you're gonna. I think you're gonna see the fielding mistakes, which could be worse. Believe me. Look at the New York Yankees. Uh, you're gonna see fielding mistakes right through through the season. Those silly moments from young people. But I think when those guys start hitting, you're gonna find some games where it's absolutely ridiculous and they put up crooked numbers. And I think in the end, all I'm looking for is competitive baseball in August, September. If we can at least be in the conversation at that point. Fighting for a playoff spot, I'm good with yeah. what's going on. Enjoy I just watching wanna... Mike Trout this weekend, guys. It's not often we get to watch him. Yeah, that's true. Absolutely, absolutely. I just want to squeeze this in just a little bit. We're headed into the championship weekend for the men's curling event, and uh, Brendan Botcher could finish anywhere between third and sixth to start the playoffs. How does he do this weekend? Will he make the final, Cameron? Oh, I think he'll definitely make the final. I think uh, he had a couple of games there that uh, weren't very botcher-like. And uh, seeing his game today, um, I think he was back to his clinical self. Uh, So, yeah, I think he's going to do really well in the playoffs and get to that championship game. I think we're looking at a championship game for sure, and I think he can win it. I think his skill and his shot-making have been strong. The teams that he's come up against, he's had a chance to learn. And I, I don't think there are any surprises anymore. I yeah, think he can figure this out. Yeah, I tend to agree with the learning part because we have those times where we just kind of, I don't want to say gap, but it's that knowing the opponent and following in. And, and I'm sure from that, he learns quite well. Absolutely. I think we're going to see uh, at least into the semifinal and who knows what happens. A bronze medal would be very uh, good for this team as being young as they are i think you're in for a great championship weekend and it starts tonight against uh actually we don't know yet who it starts against 9 p.m eastern it could either be scotland or switzerland depending on what happens in the afternoon matchup kelly thank you so much for joining us today we really appreciate it thanks for having me guys that is the end of our show for this week i'd like to thank cam jenkins josh watson kelly mcdonald who you can catch weekdays from 2 to 4 p.m eastern Monday through Friday. I'd like to also thank our technical producer, Matt Agnew, our technical supervisor, Ace Paula Deneen, and our manager of AMI Audio is Andy Frank. Tune in next week because you just never know what happens when you enter the neutral zone. Be safe and have a great week. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.